Well, if you want to turn your Bibles, uh, if you have them or your phones, I'm going to read a couple verses of Scripture, and then Sue is going to do an Advent reading uh, for the week of peace this week. Luke 2, 13 to 14 says this, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And John 14, 27 says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, Jesus says to his disciples. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. All right, I'm going to do a little Advent reading. And if you want in this space just to even close your eyes, quiet your heart, and just receive this message of Advent, this message of peace, which is what we've just lit the candle for, for the second Sunday of Advent. So peace, it is a thing that is announced at Jesus' arrival and what is left when the Prince of Peace goes back to his heavenly throne. Jesus brings it, Jesus gives it, and like the great words of one of my favorite carols, his law of love and his gospel is peace. In a world that feels more fragmented than whole, more fearful than tranquil, peace on earth feels like a pipe dream sometimes. It's my struggle, maybe yours too, to find peace within yourself. I'll often ask myself, when did I lose my peace? But when I'm plagued with worry and too busy to rest, the Holy Spirit will gently whisper, my peace I give to you. It's the longing of Advent to yearn for peace to show up in the dark corners of earth and the restless places of your heart. And personally, I'm learning to lean into the longing. The world needs peacemakers, and I can be one of them, and so can you. And starting closest to home first, which often, I don't know about you, but it can be the hardest. It's hard, and it's messy, and it's loud, and it's holy. To find peace despite circumstance or storm is sanctifying work. I'm talking about a peace that is supernatural, not superficial. It isn't brought about by calm children. Come on, that never happens. Yuletide candles or perfect relationships. This peace, it surpasses all understanding. It is curious to me that most obviously peaceful character in the Christmas story, it's Mary. Gentle Mary, meek and mild, young, unwed, humble, humbly undertaking an enormous surprise assignment that throws off her entire life off axis. We sing a song asking Mary if she knows, but in the words recorded about Mary, I see a warrior. I see eyed wise open. I see a surrendered heart, hands straight up, fiercely resolved, leaning in, leaning in in uncertainty, but delivering peace. Mary, Mary surrenders. Mary wholly submits her role in God's rescue plan as she relinquishes control. Mary, Mary worships. Mary's brave song proclaims what she knows to be true of the mighty one. He holds ultimate power and authority. He is a provider, a rescuer. He is merciful. He is near. His ways, as Christian's going to preach on today, they are countercultural. Completely upside down and always best. And Mary, she rejoices. She celebrates who God is and who he has been and who he will forever be. As she takes one courageous step after another, Mary's worship holds a torch to light her way. She pushes back the darkness of the unknown by raising his name high, not by understanding but simply by raising his name high and aligning with all that he has promised. Mary, Mary protects. Perhaps Mary felt the gravity that that night more deeply than any other. This was heaven in her lap. So while everyone marls in frantic wonder, Mary treasures up. She defends 
perseveres and keeps safe and sound what she experienced on holy ground. Mary, Mary wrestles. That famous term, pondered. Here, it doesn't refer to a fleeting reflection. In Greek, pondered actually is defined as dispute with, meet with, and engage in war. Mary wrestled with her reality. This brand new baby boy in her care, it was also the savior of the world. With her heart insulated by his protection and her own obedience, there was space for longing and fight, for questions and answers. This messy, holy work of peacemaking within. In our prayer today, Jesus, our prayer is that we find our lives marked, covered, consumed by peace. Not because it comes easily or naturally or your home is quiet and restful. Jesus, but because the Prince of Peace honors our devotion. God, we pray that in the waiting and in the unexpected, may we surrender fully and completely to you. In the unknown of our lives, Jesus, may we raise a torch of worship. And amidst the noise and the wonder, Jesus, may we protect our hearts. And within the safety of the palm of your hand, God, may we wrestle out the restlessness. And today on this second Sunday of Advent, Jesus, may we find in these places the gospel of peace and the deep resounding love of your name and your father whose arms is completely wrapped around us, that we are safe within your embrace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We did a Catholic wedding, or we're at a Catholic wedding yesterday, and there was a lot of, and the people said. <laughs> um, I, as we start the message, um, I've asked Jen to come give a testimony that I think is going to be highly encouraging. Jen, would you share that? I agreed to share this when there were a lot less people here this morning, but (laughs) so if I start rambling because I get nervous, just give me the nod. Okay, so I'm Jen. Um, I'm married to Hugh. A lot of you may or may not know us. Um, So usually testimonies are like, yeah, I had this great victory, Um, but this testimony is about my attitude shifting. So, hi, you're going to come up here with me? Help me not cry. I'm a crier, so. Okay. Um, so the past over a year, my husband and I have been trying to get pregnant. Um, they found some issues. Um, and then he also is an actor. We've been waiting for that breakthrough for, he's been working on it for like almost five years now. And I have been praying for healing for five years for my knees. Um, a lot of you have prayed for us. Thank you so much. Um, I kind of put God on a timeline with the whole pregnancy thing, and I said, okay, God, like, I've got to be pregnant by this time because of some circumstances, and it didn't happen, and I was devastated. My poor husband had to, we only had been married for two years, and he was dealing with this, like, depressed, emotional mess, and if you know my husband, he is not emotional, (laughs) so... He was, he was a saint through it all, um, I, which I struggled with depression a lot of my life, but had come out of it once I started following Jesus. So I found myself embarrassed. I didn't want to come to church. I didn't want to pray. I was like, okay, God, I had prayed all this time. It didn't happen, so maybe if I just do nothing, then I'll get pregnant. So I avoided. I couldn't connect with God, couldn't connect with my husband. I couldn't connect with friends. Um, So I just was a mess. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, Good work. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, so it just, it got got pretty bad. And then um, I was at SSM one night, and we were doing this exercise, and we asked um, God to just show us something about the person. And this person was show, showed my bedroom of my freshman year of high school. And I was like, God, 
why? Like everything, the weird blacklight posters and everything, like so detailed, like the view of my window. I was like, what is, why are you showing her this? This is so weird. And then he like gently was, I was like, I hated my freshman year high school. It was horrible. And then I was like, oh yeah, I was throwing a major temper tantrum. My poor earthly father, I have apologized to for my bad behavior that freshman year. And he was like, yeah, you're throwing a temper tantrum right now too. Man, <laughs> I'm 32 years old. I shouldn't be throwing temper tantrums. And I know Jesus, and I was in it, and I was in the midst of it, and it was messy. And, and then I made that decision. I was like, I'm not going to be depressed anymore. I'm not going to let this get in the way of my relationship with God. And I had been embarrassed to share it with anyone because I was like, hey, I'm on the prayer team, like, I go to prayer, I do all, like, all these things, like, I'm past this depression, like, I shouldn't be struggling this hard. But then I started telling a few of you what I was going through, which was really important, um, and you guys started praying for me, and I started reading my Bible again, and I started praying, and and I just, he really, he met me where I was, so thank you to all of you that have been praying for me. Um, so we're still waiting, we're still contending, but my attitude has shifted, and I'm not, I'm not going to be depressed anymore, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself, and I'm not telling all of you this to feel sorry for us either. Um, it's, to, it's to say, like, we don't, we don't need the breakthrough to have a breakthrough in our spirit. Um, yes, <laughs> So I encourage you, um, if there's something that you're struggling for, like, don't hold it to yourself. Don't be embarrassed. Don't feel like, um, oh, Jesus didn't struggle with depression, neither should I. Or it's, it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay um, to keep coming up here and asking for prayer every week because um, I had run out of faith, but... The people around me helped me have the faith that I needed, that I need. So that's what this church represents, um, is showing Jesus faith and love and hope. Even if you can't feel it, they'll feel it for you and they'll pour it into you. So, love you guys. So Stay right there. <laughs> Stay right there, Jen. Amen. Yeah, give a round of that. Um, I'm just going to ask her to pray over us. But, but as you do, how many of you needed to hear that this morning, myself included? Yes, yes. I, um, we have to be a place. You guys are incredible people. You have incredible stories. We're walking miracles everywhere. Sometimes, though, when you look around, we can just fall into the same comparison trap as anywhere else on earth. And, and the reality is if we can't be a place where we can be real and raw in the midst of our pain, then what the heck are we doing? And I think this is just a humbling, beautiful reminder of what it means to be the body. So can we receive that word um, as uh, Jen prays over us? Yeah. Um, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful congregation. And I just pray that you will just release your faith, your hope, and your love into everyone sitting here. Um, that you will just open the eyes of the people sitting next to them, that they will just, um, everyone in this room will be given like a prophetic word or something um, to give to the person next to them, um, that this will just be um, a, a time of hope and love and peace to everyone that you just release um, and pour it out. In your name, amen. Amen, amen. And then final little thing. Oh. <laughs> she, she practiced what she preached and she came to um, pre-service prayer this morning. <laughs> And, uh, and as she was praying, she just got a, a beautiful little picture that I think ties into the scripture this morning. So why don't you share that? Yeah, um, I saw a picture of a beautiful like pine tree forest, and I, saw, and I felt like it really represented each and every one of us. Um, and then I saw someone with a really sharp axe trying to chop one of the trees down. And it looked really, really sharp, but as they were trying to like hack away... Um, it was like rubber and just bouncing off, and the tree wasn't affected at all. Um, and then I just felt like God was like, man, the tree represents so many beautiful things. Um, the, 
amazing smell of the pine tree is just like Jesus' presence, and he just wants to pour his um, sweet like fragrance over every one of us. Um, the tree needs water to grow, which is the Holy Spirit. Um, and you don't have to try to grow. Like trees don't try to grow, they just grow. Like the more you're saturated in Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's presence, like we just naturally grow. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you could turn your Bibles to Psalm 1. I'll read that over us. The first Psalm in, in all the scriptures. And uh, I love that, that when you get into the Psalms, this is, these are all ancient songs. That the purpose is that those who sing the Psalm will own its values. Namely, that they will want more and more to be people who love the Torah. That's the, the Jewish book of the laws. But who believe it, who see themselves as the heirs and stewards of the story of redemption and hope. And who seek to carry out its moral requirements. And Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man which translate as, as a deep sense of fulfillment and happiness. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now remember that the law is not a book of rules. The law was always meant to be the place where you commune with, with the Godhood, with the Father. David in the wilderness was playing song after song after song, meditating on the law of the Lord. He wasn't meditating on the rules that he was supposed to do and not do. And then it says this, this person that meditates on, on, the, on the law of the Lord day and night, this is what he's like. He's like a tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Amen. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But um, as, I, as I just put some thoughts together here, because <laughs> we want to end today with some communion and to respond in some ministry. But um, we felt to end the year with some, some emphasis on how we address the cultural tensions that we run into. And uh, I think I mentioned this story back earlier in the, the year, but D-Day had, a, I think, a major anniversary, like, was it 75 years or something exactly this year uh, at D-Day? And, and uh, I was reflecting on that. We were in France this summer, and we're in that region of Normandy, and it was just real raw and real. And then even this past week, I was reflecting. We had just recently watched another World War II movie. My, bro my, uh, my son, Finn, found out about the series Band of Brothers, and there's nothing in life he wants more right now besides uh, a $300 Lego set. There's nothing that he wants for Christmas at least $300, I just, endless amounts of hundreds of dollars he wants Lego sets. And, but besides that, what he wants more than anything is to watch Band of Brothers with me, the series, when he found out uh, about this show. And if you don't know what it is, it's probably the greatest Steven Spielberg work that's ever been done. It's like a Steven Spielberg movie, but you get like six series of it. I can't remember how many series it goes on. How many? Oh, I thought someone shattered it out. So anyway, uh, there's something about that war, World War II. We've had a lot of wars since then. Why does that one stand out as so significant, particularly to those in our culture? And it's the reason I believe the meaning is, is because that war was very black and white to us, and it still is to this day. We had a real clear enemy, Hitler, the Nazis, evil. And no matter what we have done wrong as a country, with Native Americans, with, with slavery, with, in Vietnam, in Korea, in the Middle East, or whatever else your, your convictions on our battles of the past are, the vast majority of the human race agrees that we were in the right at Normandy. And why does Hollywood keep making movies? Because pretty much everyone finds meaning in that battle, in that war. And so I, I think that, that that's something that we can all resonate with again. But I say that to segue into, um, have any of you read the book by Viktor Frankl called The Man's Search for Meaning? I've had maybe three or four things reference that in just the last couple weeks. And so I felt to highlight um, a couple things from that book. Um, and here's, here's the premise. Uh, Victor was in the Holocaust in a concentration camp. And then he came out and he, he kind of reflected on essentially what he learned about 
meaning and man's search for it in light of what he observed in the Holocaust. And he, he basically does this. He, he, noticed, uh, he helps explain how prisoners of the Nazi regime struggled through. These experiences also provided Frankel with evidence for his psychological theory called logotherapy, which explains how in order to thrive and in more dire circumstances survive, we need to discover our personal meaning of life. And, and what he, he found was is there were several reactions of prisoners in the, in the concentration camps. The first being that, that they, they had shock. First in the form of hope, then despair. Prisoners were so shocked at what was happening that they desperately tried to convince themselves that somehow everything would be okay. Due to the shock of arriving at the camp, the prisoners succumbed to this thing called the delusion of reprieve, falsely believing that the line they were in would somehow mean an escape from certain doom. Confronted with grotesque brutality, they soon lost their hope and began to see death as some kind of relief. Most, in fact, considered suicide as a way out, perhaps by grabbing the electrical fence around the camp. I know that's a little dark. We're, gonna, we're not going to stay dark. Don't worry. It's heavy. I know. And here's what happened. After a few days in the camp, prisoners fell into a state of apathy, which allowed them to concentrate on survival. Following their initial shock, they soon became used to the horror and the death that surrounded them, thus becoming emotionally dull. They mostly talked and even dreamed about things like food and other kinds of vital life-sustaining satisfactions that, were nor that, we, that we normally take for granted, but which were severely limited in the camps. While prisoners hid from the horror in the first phase, the dull emotions of the second phase acted as a shield, giving them the constitution to both live through the everyday cruelties of the camps and grab any opportunity to improve their own chance of survival. Usually, we live for the future. We make big plans and we get excited about seeing our life unfold. Prisoners in the camps, however, had a completely different view. For them, there was no excitement for the future. There wasn't even a future. Nobody knew when or if their prison term would come to an end. They merely existed in the camp. They gave up living as there were no goals to reach. Life then after liberation from the camps was often characterized first by a feeling of disbelief and then even bitterness as people couldn't fully resonate with what they experienced because most people were overwhelmed with their own experiences. You didn't have to go to a concentration camp to suffer and to go through things in the war, obviously. So that was an amazing process for them to go through at the, at the end. The prisoners concentrated on their inner lives to distract themselves from what was happening in the real world. That's essentially the essence of what they did in the camps. But how is it possible to protect their sanity and survive these horrors? In essence, it all came down, Frankel says, to where they placed their focus. Most prisoners accepted their fate, but some tried to make decisions whenever they could. I think it's even interesting this morning with Jen's testimony. She talked about the decisions she was making. And then her circumstances didn't change, but she started to make healthier decisions. Some of that is the vulnerability of allowing the community to be there. And it's not just an individual act. It's a communal one. The freedom to choose, whether it's picking out our outfits, our lunches, or the charities to which we donate, is something we all take for granted. Of course, in the camps, nothing could be taken for granted. The ability to decide for oneself took on a completely new meaning. What Frankel would respond then to this whole thing was that our motivation to act stems from our life's meaning. During that time, he realized again and again that people need meaning in their lives in order to have something to look forward to. Indeed, the prisoners who could maintain this meaning were stronger and more resilient than those who had lost it. I'm going to skip some stuff and then finally end with this. He argues that there's no general, just a generic sense of meaning of life, which you can agree or disagree with. It's not necessarily a Christian believer. But he argues that everyone's life has its own specific meaning in a given moment, or you at least have to search what your life's meaning is in each moment and connect with that. I think many believers connect with a, a universal long-term sense of meaning in terms of our, our life on earth and heaven and earth and all that stuff, but we struggle to connect with what's my purpose today. Knowing how important it is to find a purpose in life, we're, asked, ask, we're left asking ourselves how we go about finding our own. And again, these prisoners, they, they, would, they would 
start to look, the ones that survived would start to look at the things that they could make decisions about, like finding the beauty in a bird or a ray of sunshine or a tree. And I think there's something about how we are meant to be counterculture and be people in the midst of society that are able to see differently. We're able to choose how we respond, starting from the place, the posture of our attitudes and our spirits and our hearts. And that's what I want us to delve into um, a little bit today. Because we live in a society that that has warped into a completely individualistic culture, the West, at least. And what's, what's happening is uh, we're struggling with things like um, the tension between individualism and tribalism. I had a, a class this week. I was very impressed with the students. And, and I started throwing out all these isms, like individualism, tribalism, materialism, postmodernism, blah, 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 blah. Now, before I bore you to death and you start checking out, I'm not going to talk about all those things. I am going to briefly mention, though, that we live in a culture right now where individualism reigns. And that has happened because of a concept of freedom. We are obsessed with freedom, freedom of choice, and the person to be able to make as many choices as possible. That doesn't have anything to do with your political affiliation. This is everything to do with the context of the culture that we live in. And so there's a system overarching all of this. And we, we want to compartmentalize. We want to look at life as something that we can compartmentalize. We want to be able to be like, okay, I, I can do this during the week. I can do this on Sunday. I can do this at this stage of life. And I can progress in my career. I can progress in my spiritual life. And the reality is, is that there is a system. Life is interconnected on so many ways. And we cannot look at it like that or we will suffer and we live in a, in a system, an individualistic system, that, that people are, are struggling to find their meaning in an individualistic society. Why? Because in an individualistic society, community is depleted and meaning is depleted. Uh, in fact, this, this pastor named Mark Sayers says that we essentially have three reservoirs in, in, our, in our lives. And, and, and it really resonated with me. I've, I've seen people break it into different kinds of, of banks or reservoirs or whatever else. But he talks about just like, you know, you might have a water tank on your house and you got to, you know, the rainwater comes in, there's an input, and then there's an output that goes, you can put it into your garden or whatever. Um, we get this concept with a lot of other things too, like our, our gut health. That's like the big thing with health these days, with diet and so forth, is gut health, right? What you put in and what comes out, how, you know, it's not just as important of like, you know, we have problems when, you, when it doesn't come out. Big problem, right? If you're just putting everything in, also big problem. If there's not a good filter, which is you and me, problem. Our input and output are significant. Our, our gut health is significant. And, and so just like we need an input and output, there's a reservoir that we have. And those tanks that we have are broken down, he suggests, in kind of three things. The first is we have a tank for meaning. We need to feel like there is meaning in our life and our purpose. And, and that's why I read this thing on the, the Holocaust. Because when we eliminate all this fluff of our culture and you get down to the human spirit of survival, that finding meaning, you can find it in a concentration camp or you can find it with endless options. The reality is our freedom doesn't mean that we have more meaning. It actually means we have less. The second being community. We have this innate reservoir to be filled up and to share life with one another and to actually not be selfish, but to be selfless. And the third reservoir would be freedom. So what do you think in our culture is absolutely overflowing? Freedom. Everyone say freedom. Say America. I just I do that from time to time. It's probably the fifth time I've done that. Uh, I just find that fun. But it's not just America and freedom. But there is the reality that our culture is obsessed with freedom. Um, and when I say freedom, again, don't think stars and stripes now that I've ruined that. Think like the number of options of almond butter that you have at Sprouts. Yeah, you love it. See, I mean, I hear it. 
I love my options of almond butter. I, I kind of do too. I like the option that's like less than $8 for one jar. My gosh, how expensive can a jar of butter be of any kind? But we have endless options of the things we go at the store, endless options of, of whatever it is. And so our freedom and what that represents in society is that we are busting at the seams with choices. And the trade-off, we would think that that means that we're going to be more, we're going to find deeper community, deeper meaning. And the reality is, is we're starving for meaning. We're starving for community. So what has to happen is that we have to have some kind of exchange. We need, we need to actually sacrifice our freedom tank in order for our meaning tank and community tank to increase. It's like, what does he mean by that? Oh, that's a great question. The root of our cultural anxiety is that we are fat on freedom and we are starved for meaning. If you want one image, just think of the obesity epidemic that we have in our minds that we're talking about in the whole free West and make that a spiritual root and say what we actually have is we have freedom of choices, what is making us fat on freedom, and we are starved for meaning. So how do we find meaning? How do we pursue countercultural lives of meaning? Number one, we have to prioritize connection. Connection. Where the heck am I with that? Okay. <laughs> Deep connection. That is one of the things I think that we have the opportunity to do in a church is because this whole thing is about connecting deeply and connecting with God deeply. But it should also be about a, a posture and an environment that helps us connect with our families deeply and our spouses deeply and our friends deeply and our loved ones that have hurt us deeply. Connecting deeply is, is the absolute craving of our heart's desire. And when we don't do it, our meaning suffers. Secondly, we need to take on the posture of sacrifice. We understand that if you want to get fit as an athlete, you have to sacrifice your time, your resources, your energy, your comforts, and all these things for the, the target that you want to have. We get that, and then somehow in, in the environment, the culture, we don't equate all the options and freedoms that we have to a system that requires us to limit those freedoms in order to get meaning and connection and fulfillment and flourishing, and community. How does that work? Well, you know, you had options when you came here this morning. You could have gone to a thousand different places just in Pasadena. And, and I, I get the fact, like, I love choices. I feel like this speaks to my heart really deeply because I, if I, I love buffets because of the options. But then I realized as I got older because I love food, that buffets have like the worst quality of food. And then as my search for like depth and connecting with my food and meaning in my food <laughs> increased, I was willing to sacrifice those buffets for a deeper connection and satisfaction and fulfillment with my meals. And I paid a higher price often for, you know, for those things, for that quality, for that experience. I was willing to limit my intake in certain aspects for something greater. And we need to relook at our lives. How are we setting up our lives? When you guys do this and commit to this community, you are committing in the face of a culture that has endless options. You have endless church options, social options, every other kind of option you would want. And when you commit, and you are naturally sacrificing and giving up other options to go to that. When you say, I want to get a meal with you today, you are not getting a meal with someone else. When you're saying you have five kids and you, get a, you do something with one of them, you're saying, I actually am not doing anything with you, 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 and you, and you, because I need to do something with just you. Because you're deprived of deep connection. And I can't connect with you deeply when I'm doing something with everybody. We have to fit our lives into the ways of the kingdom that are countercultural. And if you pause for a moment, the most drastic things you can do at the end of this year and you set the rhythms of next year is start realizing how deeply you are affected by this system that we live in. It is affecting every last aspect of what we do. 
I had, I, had a, I had a friend, did I share this last, I shared this with someone this week, but um, had a dream with, um, for me. And you know he's really good at, he's done the dream interpretation courses when he kind of gives me this dream and he puts it in a really uplifting way, encouraging way. And then as I sat there, I'm going like, oh, this is like, like man, not necessarily a good dream, but, but he, he, he delivered it really nicely and lovingly. And, and basically, the, the picture was I was scrolling through my phone, and, and all I could see was Jesus instead of, like, the comparison. I think he even had this thing. So, like, on my Instagram, I have only good things for the most part. Like, I follow endless ministries, churches, like, uh, leaders that I love and, 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 and glean from. But how many of you know, even if you have, like, a really healthy, like, intake of, of people you follow, whether that's social media, emails, news, or whatever else, the underlying issue is, do you struggle with comparison to that? And that standard and that image that they're putting out that is always flaming perfect <laughs> is subconsciously feeding your spirit and your soul of this is a standard that you don't meet. This is a standard that you don't meet. This is a standard you don't meet. And I thought I was pretty good at that, to be honest, like filtering that and not doing that. And, and what, what the picture was is that all I could see when I scrolled through was Jesus. And then like, he, he prayed over it just like this, this posture of like ministry comparison and that sort of thing. And, and I'm like, oh, dang it, that's convicting. And really thankful that he made that encouraging and uplifting. But, but uh, so a lesson to all of us as we give correctional dreams and images to each other. Always uplifting, edifying, and encouraging. That's, what's the, that's the biblical mandate. So the point is, is I receive that, and I want us all to receive that. What is it that we struggle with comparison in society? The, because society is bombarding us to compare with everything we do. And it can live under the, 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 the umbrella of bettering your life, learning. That's the biggest lie of comparison. I'm just learning from these people. Because it's a partial truth. What is it that you're learning, gleaning, filtering, and inputting that isn't healthy for your gut health? What, what is it that you have to start limiting? And sometimes it's like a prayer and fasting thing. Like, so for, for instance, like there's aspects of what, what maybe you have to do for your job. Maybe you have, your job is with like a social media and you have to do it. Well, maybe you need to fast social media like regularly. Just like we fast and pray on the regular, what do, you need, what do you need to manage on the regular to make sure that you're continually centered in the presence of God? That image in Scripture is a tree planted in streams of water. That is continually the place that we're supposed to live by. Jesus uses the image of abide in the vine. And when you abide in this healthy vine that's got streams of living water attached to it, then you can be a branch attached to it, and you are going to be prosperous. You are, you are going to have life-giving, systematic prosperity. And one of the pictures I love, Chris Valentin shares this, um, this word on ecosystems. And how many of you have heard that, the ecosystem dynamic? So he, he shares this concept where, where uh, let's say you're, you're a refrigerator, or you're a thermostat versus a thermometer first. Uh, he says the church oftentimes is just a bunch of thermometers. And a thermometer does what? It just it, it, it shows you the temperature of the room. And so as Christians, we go around kind of like Christian chameleons, and we are just the temperature of whatever room we're in. So when you're at church, it's just like, yeah, I can feel the fire of God, the presence of God. I can pray in power. I can minister effectively. I can encourage someone else. And then I go to my office. And, and the temperature in my office is, is like Narnia in the winter. And I'm like a shivering Mr. Tumnus, just frayed out of my mind. And I am not adjusting anything in my environment because I'm a thermometer. I'm not a thermostat. Like the room doesn't change when I walk in. But that is your identity, is that we're supposed to adjust the temperature of the room when we walk in. I think that's like the, one of the beautiful pictures of Jesus we get is, is that he walks into the room, everything shifts and changes. All the options of everyone in that room shift the moment that Jesus walks in. And then he says, this that makes me this way, what I'm giving you, breathe and receive this spirit and go and do likewise. And so we have to take on this, this, this posture of our hearts that we are not 
thermometers, even if that has been the practice. And so what the frustration can be is we can come into these environments and we, and we can be in a fiery, beautiful, God-loving environment and we can function really well there and then we don't understand why we don't function outside of there. And it's because our ecosystem hasn't been set so that we become the thermostat of the, of the place that we go. If you're a refrigerator and let's say you've got a boiling pot of water and the example was if, like, if you're a student that goes to, to, to whether it's a ministry school or whatever and you're just fire for God and you're like this boiling pot of water and then I go and put you in an ecosystem of a refrigerator that's ice cold or a freezer, how long is it going to be until that boiling pot of water turns to ice? Who cares? All we know is it's going to turn to ice. Why? Because it's not connected to any source at all. It's not connected to any fire, any electricity. On the contrary, if you unplugged that, that refrigerator and you plugged in, let's say, a boiler of a boiling pot of water, and you then put it in the refrigerator and closed the door, what's the temperature of that refrigerator going to do? It's going to rise. What's going to happen if you leave it plugged in? And there's an ecosystem of a refrigerator and an ecosystem of a boiling pot of water. You're going to have two conflicting ecosystems. And that's what we are to be. You're to be a boiling pot of water connected to a stream of living water that is continually lighting your fire. And what often happens, I've seen this as a Bible school teacher and I've seen this around other ministry schools, is the students get really fired up. They're able to go out and they have all these testimonies and they come out just like Jesus. He sends the 12 out. They come back going, oh my goodness, Jesus, the demons, healings, they all happen. It's amazing. I say that because they were all like 14, the, 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 the disciples. Five of you found that funny. Okay. Um, they, they were really excited. They were young guys with no maturity that had just been anointed by Jesus, poof, go and do what I do. And they kind of tried, and it worked. And then what happens is he goes, for me to really leave, you're going to be screwed unless you wait in Jerusalem to connect to fire. And I think a lot of our, our struggle is that we suffer with, with these moments of being connected to the source. And we continually go out and go out and we feel disconnected from our source. Disconnected, disconnected, disconnected. And we're, we're meant to be these people. And then our, these students go out and they go out into the world and they're, they're craving like, oh, it's just not the same as like when we were in school. Because what did they have when they were in school? They had community. They had, they had mentors. They had a fire that had already been stewarded many times for years or decades to develop an environment that they could just step into in five flipping seconds and then enjoy it, right? I've watched this from time to time where, like, you see something that took, like, years and years to build an environment, and then someone comes in, and they immediately, like, like they don't realize why everything is so what it is. Like what, even in the short time that we've been here, the, the culture that you build where you come in and hopefully there's a dynamic where you feel safe, you feel loved, you feel known. People look you in the eye. People want to know you for who you are. Hopefully we aren't just constantly comparing. Hopefully we are the kind of people that will get into trenches with you. Hopefully we're the kind of people that we're going to be family with you and to connect and build in and care how your children are, your loved ones are, your future spouses. All these elements should be the norm. But that doesn't happen because yesterday we did like, you know, a, a web marketing campaign and you all showed up here. It, it, there had to be a system, an ecosystem, a little ecosystem developed. And then within that, we start to train men, women, children to become those who've got a connection to the source. And we start to give them little baby steps to go out and see how it goes. And then it's like, oh, that did not go so well. Okay, let's try again, get reconnected, and go again. And, and stop getting discouraged when it doesn't go so well, when you took a huge step outside the boat. And that imagery of, of, of counterculturalism, it's constantly there. What do you think Jesus is trying to teach Peter when he steps out the boat? Why do you think he wasn't encouraging to Peter when the one guy kind of got this countercultural lifestyle that Jesus is trying to get? Because he didn't get it. He touched it like an excited, immature student that when Jesus was gone, he's going to be just as screwed as everybody else. So he's like, big whoop. Not being mean. Just like, that's a cool story, Peter. 
It's not going to matter when I'm not here. Because what I'm trying to build in you is a connection to your father that's not going to leave when I'm gone. Some of you need to be reminded today that being connected to your heavenly father, the disconnect isn't on his end of the equation. And he's not looking at you with guilt and shame, saying shame on you that you're disconnected and that there's no fire in your life. He's inviting you back with open arms, saying, come. Saying, come here. Connect with me. Maybe, maybe limit some of your choices and options so that I can pour out abundance in your dry reservoirs. I'd love to get the team to start to come up, and I want to respond with, uh, with we're going to take communion, we're going to respond in some worship, and, uh, and then I just, I just want to remind us of a couple things as we, as we start to wind down. As usual, no idea where I went with the notes, hopefully you, you uh, navigated that. Were you putting stuff up there randomly? Well done, Lana Marie. Okay. Um, <laughs> the church. We are, we are a community of meaning in, the, in a culture of endless freedom and options. You know, the reality is, is if you don't have freedom, freedom is absolutely critical. Now, there are parts of the world where people don't have basic freedoms. We can look back at the Holocaust and then go, like, well, that doesn't really happen today. We all know that that's not true. We can look at North Korea. We can look at parts of communist nations. We can look at other parts of regimes that are in, in South America, Africa, pretty much every continent. And then you can see sex slavery and that thing that happens in every city, in every country, no matter what the culture is. And there's something in us that says when people's freedom is stripped from them, that's wrong. The people of Israel's story starts from a place where they had no freedom and God had to impart freedom in order to build the community that he wanted to shine to draw the rest of the world in. Freedom is hugely important, but we're overflowing in freedoms and options. What do we do as a community in a culture of endless options to fill the reservoirs of meaning and community? What does that mean for the next season of your life? What does that mean for the next season of this house's life? existence. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What if the mindset that we have, the systematic system of of belief is perfectly wired to give us the results we've been getting? What if living in this culture with the belief system of this culture is perfectly wired to get us the exact results we continue to get. And that what the Father is inviting us into is to be a people that are not conformed to that system, but are transformed by a refreshing of the mind that starts to see what it looks like to be those with freedom, meaning, community, purpose, flourishing, and fulfillment. And maybe it just starts with being vulnerable with your community. Stop thinking that the answer is reading one more book. Read the book and then tell someone about it. Be vulnerable with what you are delving into. Because the lie of individualism is that utopia lies at the end of this line of self. And Christians for centuries have been yelling at us to not be so selfish. But what the Father's voice is saying is that, would you just die so that I can show you how to live? Would you just surrender to me so that I can show you what's on the other side of the culture of my kingdom and my ways? His invitation to die to self is not one to put you through a bunch of hell. It's to show you heaven on earth. And we are already living in hell in an environment that is so full of endless freedom and self and individualism, and it's deprived of life's most significant place of meaning. Can we be the type of people that start to demonstrate what it looks like to be sons and daughters 
that know why we're selfless, that know why we live not for ourselves but for others. And in that place, we have security and identity that there is more than enough in our reservoir for wholeness and healthiness. Because individualism's fear is that there's not enough. I have to fight for what's mine. I have to improve myself because no one's gonna do it for me or with me. And what we are is a countercultural community that says, not only will I do it with you, it's when you start, stop looking at yourself and you start looking around at those around you, you start realizing there's something in you to actually give. And when you start giving, you start to receive. And when you receive, you start to be a sign and a wonder to the world around us that demonstrates the gospel of Jesus and the Christmas story in all its fullness. Would you rise to your feet? ministry team if you could come forward and if those of you I th I'd love to have a few extras if you're uh, a ministry team person and aren't on today but you're free if you could also come up would be fantastic we have a couple of things for, for communion to my right and to my left um, the team's going to lead us in a song of response uh, and what I would like is to invite everyone to come forward and to grab one of the communion cups with wafer on top you can stay up front and worship you can stay up front and get some prayer. You can go back to your seat and pray with those around you or just take a moment as yourself. But whatever you do, as you take the cup and as you eat the bread, remember what Jesus declares about his table, about the lifestyle, about the community that he is establishing in and through us. And what is it that you need to bring to the table to, to surrender today? to say, I want to do that. I want to die to self again so that I may actually gain the whole world. Father, we invite you to manifest your presence here today in a way that in community, maybe those that are struggling to surrender something to you today are able to, in a place like this where we're all in one accord, can say, all right, I'll take a step of faith today. Maybe you just need to have someone encourage you in prayer. Maybe you just need to, to break bread and communion with someone and just be in the presence of someone else. Maybe you need to lay, lay something of your lifestyle to the Lord that is so representative of the culture and you know that it is absolutely depriving you of meaning and community and connection. And don't feel guilty about stepping forward with a shout of praise if you don't feel like it. Don't conjure something up that feels fake, but it's okay to worship and declare truth and reality before your emotions feel it. So as we respond in worship and as we respond in communion, let our, let our mouths, let our words, let our hearts declare the realities of heaven on earth regardless of what we feel in a moment. I invite you to come forward. Communion, prayer, worship, however you feel led. And let's close with that response.